Hello and welcome to What Are You Looking At? I'm Pip Stafford. This is a very special episode of What Are You Looking At? We've invited award-winning radio producer Sarah Mashman to create a story that responds to this time of COVID-19. I'm not going to talk too much about it as the story tells itself. So let's just dive straight in. Just the cobbles, you know, like beautiful sucked butterscotch. And the thing that really struck me were all the stacks of wicker chairs in the cafes and those woven textures just stacked. And that sort of felt quite ominous because, of course, cafe culture is central to Paris. It just was mind-blowing, really, just to be able to look into places that were usually, you know, throngs of people, so you just wouldn't see. All the highways were completely deserted. No one was in villages and streets, and we tried to take all the back roads not to get in trouble. But yeah, it was pretty intense, like just crossing small towns and having the whole road blocked by the army, guys holding huge AK-47s and hands-on guns and, you know, staunch faces asking for our attestations. There was a lot of rain in the time I was there. But the birds would wake up at four o'clock in the morning with its oncoming of spring and the city became a cathedral for its birds. In March, as the coronavirus restrictions started to come into force across the globe, we didn't know how it might affect our movements or how long we'd be in lockdown for. I had an unlimited metro card that came at quite an expense that I wanted to use. Meg Walsh is a contemporary artist based in Hobart. She travelled to Paris in early March to begin a three-month residency at the Rosamond McCulloch Studio at the Cité des Arts International. It's a two-room studio in the historic Le Marais district on the right bank. The platforms were deserted. They were empty and that was the scariest part thinking, you know, these people all know something <laughs> that I don't know because I'm not getting fluent feed of news. I guess another threatening thing was on the metro too where doorknobs and handrails seem to anthropomorphise into sort of demonic, the scariest things that you could come into contact with. I didn't feel in danger wandering, but I did feel in danger on, yeah, touching things on public transport. Meg was in Paris to view and document chinoiserie. A style in European painting and decoration in the European decorative arts. I guess it really peaked around when trade began between China and Europe. And so it was a decorative style that really pivoted around notions of the exotic and thinking about Southeast Asia as this exotic other and it is kind of characterized by filigree and kind of fluid uh, foliage 
very strange sort of caricatures of people and animals and very often fictitious. So it really makes visible this Orientalist sort of fantasy of what was in that geographical area and made really visible a projection of a mindset of a culture. So things being quite distorted and strangely incorrect, but as a projection of our cultural conditioning and quite sort of kitsch. And also, you know, the plunderings, the West plundered from the East. It was in fashion in around about the mid 1700s. So I've been fascinated in these murals for 20 years. So the project was to revisit those and use them for a body of work. So these murals um, by Christoph Huet, he was known as a monkey painter and people had whole careers as monkey painters. Painted monkeys to satirise the aristocracy and I was really fascinated in these wall murals um, painted on the walls of a chateau that was 32 miles north of Paris uh, where he satirises the aristocracy and himself in relation to chinoiserie, the decor uh, of the time uh, was this sort of exoticised, orientalist view of Asia, of China, and by extension the global south, of which I include Australia. And I got to the chateau and I got to uh, meet the curator and take photographs. There were a few other really important little collections in private homes, though, that I missed, that I, that, that I didn't find out about until Parisian curators and somebody at the Louvre told me about. So I'm kind of kicking myself that, you know, it takes, yeah, it takes a while to sort of settle into a place too and dig below the surface. And that was all just, there was so much pressure on everything. There were a lot of people fleeing with the suitcases. I don't know, it was me and the stragglers and the desperate tourists. There was hardly anybody at the Louvre. There were about two or three information desks with four or five chairs at them, given it's such a gigantic institution. No staff whatsoever. So you couldn't find information. You couldn't find exactly the closing time when they were gonna shut down. That was a little bit scary. So again, it was like, okay, <laughs> there's a different level of information. At Versailles, you didn't have to crane over people's heads to look at the woven gold brocade and the beautiful mirrors, you know, how the uh, silver backing desiccates and there's kind of like an algal bloom. So it comes back to details. Because of my hideous lack of French, I had to watch non-French news and I was getting the news not as directly as I needed because things, when I arrived, changed by the day and then they changed by the hour. And it just accelerated exponentially, really, really rapidly within a very short period of time at the city, people were leaving and a lot of the residents left and the staff left. And there was a point at which I realized at three o'clock in the morning on Friday the 13th, which was my 53rd birthday, that I needed to get the hell out of there. 
and arrange it really quickly because I was looking at a, a long lockdown. And the University of Tasmania had decided right at that same time that they needed to bring me back as well. So it was a really stressful, shifting sands situation. So for when I was away, I did heaps of uh, <laughs> crochet. I just crocheted all of these, like tiny little vessels. <laughs> like this is what, when I was in quarantine, you know, just, just did vessels that have no purpose whatsoever. It was this like repetitive movement and colour, you just, you know, you had no options just to mix it up a bit or anything like that. So it was using the same colour over and over again, making like a little replacement family. <laughs> and then those drawings, I had um, these A3 bits of paper and one black pen that I got given at the reception at the hotel and yeah, just focused on each individual movement and circle and slowly just try to express how intricate and beautiful that whole experience was and maybe if you look at it from the distance it might look like a little spreading virus i'm not sure <laughs> so yes try to be a little bit creative even though you know most of your senses got deprived from things that you're used to I'm pretty interested to keep doing this series. It's only just a couple of drawings, you know. They took me a few hours to do and try to make do a series of them and see how it evolves. Camille Antoine also travelled to France in early March. Her sister Lee was having a delicate operation, brain surgery. On the 16th of March, the French president Emmanuel Macron put a full lockdown on the country, so I was um, stuck in the Airbnb waiting for my sister to be, to be able to get out of hospital in good and safe hands. I really wasn't aware that it would be as strict. People started dying and the number increased every day. Everything just became a bit surreal. The surgery was a success, but the tiny Airbnb where Camille was sheltering in place wasn't ideal for Lee's recovery. They decided to drive to their mother's place, about eight hours away by car. But we didn't have any contacts if things got worse with her recovery. So we just made a run for it basically. One day we, we were like, okay, we're gonna pack our bags and tell Mathieu, her partner, to come and get us and just drive down to see my mum. And yeah, that was a pretty interesting expedition, I guess. We packed everything. All the streets were completely empty. I think by that time there was like a national panic. People didn't really know how to behave. People were really anxious because looking at um, the numbers each day and having, you know, 800 deaths per day was, was very scary. 
we got arrested about four times on the trip down. It was a post-apocalyptic kind of landscape. All the highways were completely deserted. No one was in villages and streets and we tried to take all the back roads not to get in trouble. But yeah, it was pretty intense, like just crossing small towns and having the whole road blocked by the army, guys holding huge AK-47s and hands on guns and asking for our attestations. My sister was sitting in the back of the car with her bandages around her face and completely sedated. She was at the back of the car just with her mouth open and eyes closed. And I think we, we did print her release papers from the hospital. So we had, you know, a valid enough reason to be heading back to. I'm glad we, that we did head down there. Because, yeah, once we arrived, she had to be transferred to the emergency department four times in five days. So I'm very glad that we could be there and be together. In Paris, Meg booked a flight home to Tasmania. On the same day, President Manuel Macron advised that a full lockdown would be taking effect. Meg's flight was to depart 30 minutes after the official lockdown started. I think on takeoff, I felt great, but I didn't know if I'd get beyond Abu Dhabi. I was worried that we might get stuck. And there was a delay in, in Abu Dhabi, and so the Australians started to cluster because the flight was to go into Sydney and there was great camaraderie and communication about what all our circumstances were and what we were, you know, planning to do and where we were going and I wasn't sure that I would get into Sydney until we took off from Abu Dhabi. So that's when I thought I would get home and it wasn't until I arrived home that the boys... That Jeremy was convinced that I would get home. So I guess it was quite precarious for the whole, the whole time, really. I was in quarantine here for two weeks, so I lived in here for two weeks. There was a fold-out bed in the next space. I have laptops and Wi-Fi down here, luckily. Um, I had a little kitchenette that we put to the side and that was all I needed. Oh, I had a couch over there uh, that I would sleep and watch things. Well, well, I was sort of addicted to the news at that point. I've stopped that. <laughs> it was just like the old days because I used to live in my studio in the States. I even bathed in a darkroom sink for 12 months. That wasn't being used, I scrubbed out the chemicals and I would step up into the developing tray. <laughs> it, was, it was great. <laughs> I lived in Tribeca for no rent for a year, <laughs> you know, in a fantastic studio. So it was just like the old days, I was quite happy. After Meg left France, the lockdown across Europe and most of the world became more extreme in order to prevent the spread of the pandemic. Camille had a flight booked, but she was stuck at her mother's house. So I was due to leave France a couple of weeks after my arrival on the 25th of March. My flight was cancelled 24 hours before departure. 
So then I tried to book another flight for the following week and I couldn't get through to anyone. I tried calling the French consulate in Australia. I tried to call the border, the police in France. All the airports were closed, so I had to wait. And I kept trying to call Qatar, was the only company that would actually take you back to Australia. I contacted them a few times a week and after asking about what date would be best, the lady that I spoke to said, maybe just try to come home on the 7th of May, which seemed like ages and ages away. Went to Paris, arrived there 30 minutes before departure, <laughs> had a friend contacting them saying, can you please wait for Camille Antoine? <laughs> She's on her way there and um, jump on the flight that only had, I think, seven passengers. <laughs> Even that was very surreal. Just looking around and not really seeing anybody. Like, France airport is, you know, the most visited airport really in the world. <laughs> and just being the only person there was so, so crazy. So we got to Qatar and I was really paranoid about the whole COVID traveling. The plane was maybe 70% full, so it was quite a few people there. I think it was a 15-hour flight. So we arrived in Melbourne at about 11 and had to be processed for two and a half hours and filling out forms. I thought we would get tested once we landed, but that didn't happen. We got given a little health pack of milkways and sneakers for the sky bus ride to the quarantine hotel. <laughs> At first glance, the room looked amazing, pretty fancy, <laughs> and this big, cozy-looking bed. So I thought, wow, if I get to spend 14 days here, it's not going to be too bad. And yes, then thought, maybe I should just have a cigarette. <laughs> and try to see if there was a balcony there or if I could ask someone to to go out for, you know, 10, 15 minutes. So I called three different numbers. Three men um, escorted me out to in front of the lobby at, at the hotel, had a cigarette and thought, oh, well, you know, if I can even just get out for 10 or 15 minutes a day, that, that should be okay and I was waiting for them to come and pick me up the following day and the day after, <laughs> the following 14 days, and that didn't happen. So yeah, that was the hard, hardest bit to deal with, I guess, in the whole two weeks. I mean, I had been told that because of the circumstances I had been in, at that point I had been in lockdown and quarantine for 78 days, and because I did smoke and because I was on a certain type of medication, they said, sure, like we, we will make sure that you get a little bit of time to exercise. And that never happened. And I don't think it happened for many people. At that point, we were 400 passengers being in quarantine in Melbourne. And then they had another lot of 200 passengers. And what I got told was like, listen, we don't have time and we don't have the capacity to let everyone out for five or 10 minutes a day. So 
if you get one walk in one week, then you've got to consider yourself lucky. After two weeks in the quarantine hotel, Camille was able to fly into Hobart. She was then quarantined for a further two weeks at home. So I had to stay home and really wanted to see Charlie, my daughter, knowing that she was only a few k's away from here. So her dad brought her over and we tried to fill that void of being away from each other for almost three months. Um, not touching was the hardest bit, but being home and being home with my dog and having the backyard to be in and do a bit of gardening and seeing my friends, you know, from the window and the front door was a lot easier. Like it was just a very nice, you know, two week holiday, let's put it that way. Meg, by this stage, was well out of quarantine and thinking deeply about her creative practice. I had a rash of creative DIY. I think I had a little bit of trauma, post-trauma, and there was sort of survivalist creative DIY. So I painted the rotten end boards down the side of the house, which, you know, saved me significant amounts of money and ended up in a three-tone fence, which I personally love. So now I've gone back to the drawing board, really literally and metaphorically, because I think this is a fantastic opportunity to reset and recalibrate and reassess. I don't want to really bow under the pressure of let's all be creative in isolation and generate projects, I, I found that that is something I wanted to get away from, from the old order. I mean, I just think there's an old paradigm and a line really just drawn in the sand. It's it just remarkable. And so I don't really want to go back to the old order. That would be my worst fear, that going back to normal and business as usual. I just don't see how that is possible. So um, I've gone back to the drawing board and I'm literally drawing. And I use sketchbooks and have done for decades in my travels. And drawing and sketching is my first love. So I've gone back to that. And I'm thinking sort of around what I can do with my drawing practice which doesn't involve things like freight, toxic material. So these are things that are the old for me or that I want to try and transcend, you know, the frustrations behind some of the things I didn't like about the art world. So I'm using the time. I think we're still in free fall as well. And I don't make art from a place that's like being inside a washing machine on a spin cycle. Caretaking and homeschooling has eclipsed yeah, my ability to do a lot of work in isolation. So I think I, I need to um, help make these things visible. Now, how we do that is another question. And I believe that we need to collaborate and have conversations to make that happen. So if we're divided and isolated, that's also going to be a problem. So I'm just applying my um, permaculture, 12 principles of permaculture, problem solving how I'm going to move in a direction. And so they're quiet, small changes, working with diversity, working with things on the periphery, making things um, sustainable, produce no waste, 
So I've gone back to the drawing board to really, I'm just sort of writing mind maps, trying to map and make visible some of the things that have been rendered invisible. And that's really the first step. And what do I have of, that can be of use to society? So that's a question I ask myself every day. And I still don't know what, what, what it is, but I ask myself that every, every day. I do art whenever I really feel like doing art. I'm not represented by any commercial galleries or everything, but I, I do use art as like sort of therapy. <laughs> At home, I would probably use mostly um, watercolors and my art practice is often quite instant. So whatever I feel, I'm going to translate it on paper and things aren't always perfect to look at as such. But I felt like having this time to focus on the one thing that I was doing just changed the way I was making. So I like to recreate like the same shape over and over and over again, the same movement as like meditation. And so I guess there, there has been a, a huge difference in how I would look at the practice between then and now, and just reflecting on how much I just run how much I do within one day and even with art I always try to hurry it almost that it needs to be quite instant and quick and having had all those hours just thinking about the one thing. So I guess after a few weeks we'll see maybe have a little exhibition at the end of it. <laughs> Thank you for listening to What Are You Looking At? The guests for this episode were Megan Walsh and Camille Antoine. This episode was created by Sarah Mashman, audio mixed down by Brendan Walls. Additional music sourced from Blue Dot Sessions. What Are You Looking At? is produced by Contemporary Art Tasmania, by Lisa Campbell-Smith and myself, Pip Stafford. For more information about our programs, head to contemporaryarttasmania.org. You can find What Are You Looking At on our website and on all your favourite podcast apps.